The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. This morning it's my pleasure to have Keith and Joy with us. After uh, about 10 years in Thailand, I think it was about five years ago that Keith and Joy returned to New Zealand. Uh, from New Zealand, they still supervise the work in Thailand and and Keith, uh, last week, I think it was, returned from a couple of weeks in Thailand. And he's going to be sharing a little bit about that. Uh, Keith and Joy also supervise the work of the Praxis team here in Auckland. If you've uh, been around for a little while, you would have heard me talk about the Praxis team. And so on a regular basis, Keith and Joy and I spend some time at the table, thinking cave, table and road. So we spend regular time at the table, uh, sharing together and, and praying together. And we also encourage one another at what God is doing on the road. And they're going to be sharing a little bit about that later on in our service. But I've decided because of the, the nature of the passage and because I really want to focus on what Keith and Joy want to share, and I want you to go away with that in mind, um, I'm going to do my message early in the piece. So this morning we pick up uh, following the story of the Tower of Babel, which is in Genesis 11. It's one of the, as I say, it's another one of these genealogies that connect us to and prepare us for the shift in the story as we now begin to focus on the life of Abraham or Abraham as he becomes the beginning or the birth of the nation of Israel. Back in Genesis 10, because we've had a month away from this, just recapping, uh, back in Genesis 10 uh, we read that the uh, clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent, within their nations, from these nations spread out all over the earth after the flood. In the process of spreading out, we read that they had found, a, as they moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. Uh, they said, come, let us build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we may be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We then read in uh, the rest of Genesis 11, or the first part of Genesis 11, how God thwarted their plans for the construction of the tower by creating a multiplicity of languages. And as a, cons as a consequence, the various descendants of Noah continued to be scattered throughout the earth. And so we pick up in one of those genealogy passages this morning in Genesis chapter 11 and reading from verses 10 to 26. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Aphexid. And after he became the father of Aphexid, he lived uh, uh, 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Aphexid had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Aphexid lived 413 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, he lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, he lived another 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Uh, when Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ray. Uh, and after he became the father of Ru, Ray, Ru, however you want to pronounce it, uh, Peleg lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When he had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. Uh, after he became the father of Serug, uh, he lived 207 years and another sons and daughters and when he had lived 
30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And Nahor had lived 29 years. He became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, he lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and he became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And we kind of go, well, that's kind of the point of the passage. And it's really easy to go, oh my goodness, just another one of those things, and you just read it through. And Andy's done really well in picking up some of the differences in the various uh, genealogies in Scripture. But this lineage takes us from Shem, the son of Noah, uh, through to Terah and his three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. The first thing I want to note is that while the author refers to Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, Abraham is not the eldest in the family. We're told that, he, that Terah became their father when he had lived 70 years. But if we jump forward to Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is about to be stoned and he's preaching a message, he tells us that Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans uh, in Haran, or settled in Iran, after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. So Stephen, in his message, says that Abraham, or Abraham as he was, left Haran after his father, Terah, had died. Terah, we're told in Genesis 11.32, lived for 205 years. This is good if you like your mathematics. He lived for 205 years before, and he died. And we're told that Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 when he set out from Haran. So a quick bit of mathematics says that Abraham was born when Terah was 130 years old. So Abraham becomes the central character of our story, but he was not the eldest in his family. We've previously noted that while the uh, author also repeat, repeatedly refers to Shem, Ham and Japheth in that order, Ham was actually the youngest and Japheth was the oldest. We see that here where it refers to Ham, the father of Canaan, and when uh, Noah found out what his youngest son had done. And then we're told in 1021 that sons were born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Here's the first thing I want us to remember. As we follow through the biblical story, we often kind of get the idea that there's something special about being the eldest. There's this double portion. There's this double inheritance that goes to the firstborn and it's a pride of place. Shem was a middle child. So if you're a middle child, yes. I would have been a middle child if mum and dad had had a third. So, <laughs> so if you're a middle child, you're in good company. And if we look at Abraham and his brothers, it's most likely that his other brothers were both, well, one was born when his father was 70, the other one was probably born between then and when Abraham was born when his father was 130. So it's probable that Abraham was the youngest son. So if you're the third child and you kind of feel like you're just a tag on at the end of the journey, God doesn't look as man does. In fact, later on when we come to the story of 
uh, Samuel looking to anoint a replacement for King Saul. And he goes to Jesse, and Jesse brings out his oldest son. And Samuel looks at the oldest son and looks, you're impressive, you must be the Lord's anointed. And uh, God says to him, do not consider his appearance, his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Shem, as a middle child, and Abraham as a youngest child, don't rate highly in the way the worldview would be. But they are the ones who are in the line of promise and greatest blessing, the messianic line. And so with Jesse, he brings out all seven sons and no one is selected. And finally he says, well, I do have another son, but he, didn't, he wasn't even worth bringing in. He's just out there looking after the sheep. And so Samuel has him bring him in, and God says, this is, this is my anointed. And David is anointed as king over Israel. He's number eight in the family. If you kind of feel like you're really down the last of the line, that doesn't matter in God's economy. Never let anything in the natural determine who you become in God. I'm not only the second child, I'm not the youngest child, I'm not even the last of eight, kind of the afterthought. The Apostle Paul later writes to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. And I go, or old, or tall, or short, or slim, or fat, or whatever. Whatever you are in the natural, don't let anyone look down on you because of that. But set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. God looks way beyond what man looks at. Never let anything in the natural determine who you become in God. Not your past, not your family of origin, not all the stuff people have said about you. Let nothing in the natural determine who you become in God. The other thing I want to look at is the, about potential conversations. Because again, we tend to see these generations and they just sprang out and we, we know it's a long period of time and we just see these generations passing away. And we miss some stuff. So this is timeline that we were looking at as we worked through our story of Adam and Seth and Enos and, and so on. And um, we see here the flood in 1656 AC after creation. If we extract ages from the passage we've just looked at, we then find out we're affected Sila, Eba. We find that in Peleg's time, in chapter 10, verse 25, Peleg's time, somewhere in his lifespan was when the Tower of Babel happened. When Terah had lived 130 years, he became the father of Abraham. There are some reports in Jewish writing that suggest that when Abraham was a young boy, 
he was sent away to live with Noah. And your initial reaction is, well, that's way too long beforehand. But actually, if you follow it through, even Jewish writings that have that story uh, treated as mythology is not quite true. Um, but if we look at it, we find that Noah actually died. Noah died 2006, and Abraham was born 2008. There's only two years difference between an overlap between these two great men of the scripture. It's interesting that if we look there and we look at Adam and Methuselah, there's a crossover in their lives of about 243 years. So Methuselah, who died in the year of the flood, had 243 years of opportunity to go and catch up with his ancestor Adam and say, tell me about creation. See, we have this picture that the story of creation was just kind of told through generation after generation after generation. But it's probable that Methuselah, I know if I was Methuselah and I lived that long, I had to fill up 969 years, I would have spent at least some of it going to talk to Adam. It's kind of on your hit list of people to talk to. And while Noah died before Abraham was born, Shem was still alive. In fact, Shem outlived. Abraham was 150 years old when Shem died. So one imagined again that Abraham would have gone to talk to the son of Noah even if he didn't meet Noah. And in fact, the area of Haran that, that Abraham goes up to live in is near where they believe Ararat was, where the, where the ark came to rest. So probably where Noah's immediate sons set up camp and settled. So it's highly probable that they had this conversation. And so rather than generation after generation having to pass on the story because no one would have heard it otherwise, it's possible that Abraham heard about the creation story third hand. That's like tracking back the distance we have to go back to hear about maybe World War I or, or events of the late 1800s. It's not through hundreds of generations, not even dozens of generations. Third hand, he may have heard the story. And of course, we also can see there that Terah, Abraham's father, was part of the Babel story. He was alive when people were scattered all over the earth. When we read the story, we kind of think that was long before Abraham because there were all these generations. But Abraham's father was alive when that story played out. It's probable that elements of the story, Moses, as he wrote them, received by inspiration from God, direct revelation. But let's not forget that these are not disconnected by multiple generations. These are stories that are being passed down through the families. On the one hand, it's kind of amazing for me to think of Abraham talking to Seth, who had talked to Methuselah, who had talked to Adam, and possibly hearing those stories. But as we've looked at that story, we've seen how evil the intention of man's heart had become, how much evil there was on the planet, to the point that God had destroyed almost the entire population of the earth by flood. 
And then he scattered them through the Tower of Babel. And yet they had such easy access to the original stories. It's not like we look and we've got lots of people out there who tell us that these biblical stories are just myths and legends. Whereas Abraham was able to say, look, I talked to Shem, we talked to Methuselah, and Adam told him this. And so it's kind of cool, but it's kind of tragic that even in many succeeding generations who had such easy access to the truth, so many reject it. It's like us with the 1800s and 1900s, so many lessons to be learned from history and so many that we forget and ignore. We think of the revivals of the past as God has brought renewed passion for him and in his word and we have so easily rejected that. And so when we come to Abraham's story, we don't find him living as we might imagine with such ready access to the origination, to the origins of the stories. We don't find him living in a godly generation. We find him living in a very pagan context. But more on that next week. And so my other takeaway is we don't have such easy access to the word. Well, we have easy access to the word. We don't have such easy access to those who wrote the word. We can't say, oh, well, it's only so-and-so told me and so-and-so. But we need to remember this is not meant to be just a written word. It's meant to be a living word. We can't rely on, oh, well, we heard it from them, we heard it from them. Our next generation don't need to hear it from us. They need to see it lived out in our lives. Not just a written word that we treasure, but a living word that we live by so that they can see the truth of the scripture lived out in our lives every day. And so I want to leave you with a declaration from the youngest of eight, King David, who said, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. One of the reasons I'm committed to the whole discovery Bible study is because it says it's not enough to know the word. You know, when I was growing up, they taught you to memorize scripture. And I know lots of people who have memorized lots of scripture and don't live by any of it. We want to teach our generation to generation not just what the word says, but what it looks like when it's lived out. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatitu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.